Okay, so Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And we'll pray before I continue. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the story recorded in the book of Genesis, um, the story of creation, that we can look to this, trusting you um, with the information that you've given, and that we can know how the things around us came to be. And Lord, help us to as we look into that, to trust you with that, to believe the words that you've said, help me to be clear um, and to, to be an encouragement in these things through this time. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is actually a difficult passage in some ways, um, partly because of some of what what I've been taught in the past, um, some of what gets taught in various churches. Um, and so to, to decide whether to preach and teach what is wrong in some of that or just to preach what I see in it is, is a challenge sometimes. And so I'm trying not to be critical of other teachings, but at the same time, I, I I may mention them just as the contrast of what I'm teaching. Um, what I'm teaching or preaching isn't obviously the only view and not necessarily even 100% correct. It's just the way I see and understand it. Um, and hopefully we can be blessed through, through that study as, as we're looking at some of these things. So um, the way I, I see verse, verse 1, and I'll explain why I see it this way, um, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavenly earth, and it ends with a period. And verse 2 picks up and starts to explain. And that's exactly what I think is happening here, is that this is nothing more than, here's a complete statement. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And I believe in verse 2, he picks up and starts to fill in the details of that creation. And why I mentioned how I started was I've been taught what they call the gap theory or whatever gap fact. Um, I don't see a gap. I don't see a... There's a teaching that this, there was an original creation and that was destroyed and then it's recreated in this, what we see after verse 1. And I don't see that in this. In this. Um, I don't see a need to include it to understand the rest of my Bible in any way. And the reason I'm, I don't see it, and the reason I think I'm consistent with this is just a statement of God did it, and now I'm going to explain how God did it, was we see the same thing happening um, in the next couple of chapters. Um, for me, I turn the page, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Thus the heaven and the earth were finished, and all the host of them... And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it, he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. These are the generations of the heavens, of the earth, which, when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground, but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, this chapter started with, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And then it goes on to explain... Um, especially when we get to verse 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground 
well, this isn't a, a, a new starting point and a, right, a new creation starting over again. This is just a, a further explanation of what took place in what God had already done. It was a, a statement, you know, we finished chapter one and I've explained and he finished that and, well, now I'm going to back up and I'm going to give you some more information, fill in a few more details. And so that's all that I see happening and it, it happens several more times. And so that's why, you know, I see it happen after this. I don't see any reason why I should consider it different in chapter 1, verse 1. So, so that's where I'm coming from. In this passage, five verses, God is named six times. I would argue that the subject being spoken of is actually God, with creation as just a background (laughs) of something about God that we need to know. But the real object or the subject of of the passage is God. And that's where I want to focus this morning, and we will certainly be looking at creation as, as we go through some of the things, but... But the real point that we need to understand when we look at this passage is God. Who is God? God God's a, a very complex being, a very complex topic, um, a topic that we can't possibly grasp as people. He gives us all kinds of information, but there's more to it than we can wrap our heads around and we're going to look at a couple of those things and I think I I certainly am not perfect in my understanding of of God Um, but I think as people are studying and trying to use our intelligence and our understanding sometimes we get too bogged down into things and, and start to mix some things up that complicate things that don't need to be as complicated as they, as we make them and we, we muddle the whole, the whole topic. So we need to be careful in that. When we're looking at verse 2, I'll read verse 2 again. It says, And the earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And so, verse 1, in the beginning God, just uh, in the beginning God. Verse 2, the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. We're already seeing there is more than one person in the Godhead. Immediately. So God is one. Go through, we, I, didn't, I didn't look up the verses. I, Deuteronomy gives a couple of statements and throughout scripture it gives very clear statements that God is one. <laughs> there is only one God. But God has more than one part that make up his whole. And we sure you've all heard the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. And so here we start to see those aspects of God already within in the first two verses of the Bible. When we get to verse 3, and God, God said, What did God say? He said, let there be light. But God spoke. We're going to look in the Gospel of John and just make a comparison here. Go to John chapter 1. I don't know. I'm sure there's a theological term for, for this, but the it's a parallel or, a, or whatever you want to call it, but 
I would, I would consider this a parallel passage to Genesis 1.1. And if we read the first five verses, we'll see that these are very much parallel passages and they speak to the exact same thing. So if I read John chapter 1, the first five verses, it says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Well, certainly the very first verse, in the beginning, got the exact same words. Genesis 1.1 is in the beginning God, and John 1.1, it's in the beginning, was the Word. But he didn't, even, he didn't stop with that, because he wanted no confusion for us. He, he explains it, so we don't have to think about this too hard. The, the Word, beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, now we have all three persons of the Godhead. In Genesis 1, we saw God, and then God, the Spirit of God, and now we have the Word of God, and the statement of the Word was God. We have all three persons. We have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together in the creation of the world. And this statement says all things were made by him. Who's that? Is it the word? Who's the word? Jesus. Clearly. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 3 said, And God, sorry, and God said, Let there be light. Verse 4 in in John says, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Read that again in Genesis. Verse 2 says, the earth was a form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. So that comparison that we're saying, what what an incredible match between these two passages regarding the light. And Jesus is that light. When we look at the rest of creation, the rest of the six days of God creating things, you know what's amazing? The sun and the moon aren't created for several days yet. (laughs) The light isn't a burning ball of fire that we call the sun or the stars. The light is just God emanating light. When we get to... The end of the story, when we go to Revelation and we see the new heaven, the new earth, it says that there's no more need of the sun because God is the light of it. God, we're in God's presence at that point and we'll comprehend that light. And we don't need the sun anymore. We don't need the sun or the moon to see because we will have God's light. We didn't need... God didn't need the sun to create light. He is that light. And the neat thing about it is that he says in verse 5, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. We don't even have a, a sun and a the system that we, we observe outside and the, the time that we spend, you know, the sun 
the earth goes around the sun and the earth rotates and we, we get all these things that we, we think we understand. We think, we've, <laughs> we think we're right about how the stuff works and why the day is exactly how long the day is from the earth rotating and you know, then we see the sun again as we get around the circle. And But God didn't use that to define the first day or the second day for that matter. But he still called it evening and morning and they called it the first day. And as we get into it, I won't get into any reasons why right now, but there's no reason to think that it's anything other than a 24-hour day, the same as it is right now in that park. So you get the point that I'm not going to make allowance for millions of years to have passed during this days of creation. I'm going to take it as very literal six days. But we'll get into that later. Right in the beginning, these, these verses, in the beginning God created it. It's just a, a definite statement. There's no ambiguity about it. God created these, the heaven and the earth. Verse 3 says, And God said, Let there be light. How did God accomplish that? He simply spoke the world into existence. He's not sitting there with a ball of mud, <laughs> packing it into a ball. and It's just like, no, God just spoke, and it was. I think we have a, we have a problem in our heads of bringing God down to our level, and we picture God too much like us. <laughs> And God's not like us. God's not limited like we're limited. God spoke. He willed it. And it happened. I've willed a lot of things. And most of them have not happened. And none of them happened because I willed it to happen. But God does. There's a couple of interesting things. Our Bible reveals some things that as far as we understand, science didn't catch up with until just the last couple hundred years, which is quite incredible from all of what we understand was taught and understood about the world and all these things that exist. But if, if you want to look at the, just a couple of verses, Job chapter 26, just before Psalms, is Job near the, the middle of the Bible. Job chapter 26. So Job 26 verse 7. things in here that we could read, but I'll, I'll, I'll start at the beginning of the chapter just to give a little bit more of what's said here. It says, but Job answered and said, how hast thou helped him that is without power? How savest thou the arm that hath no strength? How hast thou counseled him that hath no wisdom? And how hast thou plentifully declared the thing as it is? As in, like, can any of us explain God? <laughs> right? That's what he's saying. Like, we, we didn't help God. He doesn't, we, didn't, we can't even comprehend God. So who are we to speak to these things? To whom hast thou uttered words, and whose spirit came from thee? Dead things are formed from under the waters, and the inhabitants thereof. Hell is naked before him, and destruction hath no covering. He stretcheth out the north, 
over the empty place, and hangeth the earth upon nothing. He bindeth up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not rent under them. I'll stop at that point here. But the verse 7, he hangeth the earth upon nothing. Well, we've managed to step back far enough that we can look back at the earth and, and see that now. Job sure, certainly couldn't have done that. And yet, he's able to make the statement that God did this. He hung the earth on nothing. These people understood our world in a way that we can't explain how they could possibly have understood our world. They didn't have the science that we have today. And yet they were able to explain things in a way that only in recent years have we been able to explain. And even the statement in that following verse, he bindeth up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not rent under them. Like, it was just recent, I, I don't remember the numbers, but it was talking about rain, and how many tons of water are contained in a cloud. It's incredible. How does that happen? God. It's the only real explanation. How can a hail the size of a baseball fall from the sky? How did that thing get held up there in the first place long enough to form to that kind of size? It's incredible. But it says, God does it. He bindeth the waters in the thick clouds. Another passage in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40, verse 22. start in the verse before just to give some context says so Isaiah 40 verse 21 says have you not known have you not heard hath it not been told you from the beginning have you not understood from the foundations of the earth it is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. I'm not going to get into the second part of that, but I think there's something we can know about the heavens from this verse and others that speak of it. But more importantly, he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. They knew the shape of the earth. Again, long before... Anybody had the ability to step back and look back at it to know what its shape was. God, and I, I don't think Isaiah was a scientist. <laughs> I don't think he was an astronomer. It's just a man who was writing down the words that God gave him to write down. And he believed it. And so we can turn in our Bible and we can see very clear truths that we can verify today that they had no way of verifying, and yet it was written down to show us that indeed we can trust the record that was written about how God did these things. I want to look at a passage in 1 Timothy. First Timothy chapter one. Some things that we need to understand about God. I mentioned 
I said our, our view of God is far too small. And I say our, I just assume you're kind of like me in the way that you think and understand. The way that we treat God kind of reveals that that is true. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Paul's just writing. He says, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What a, it's just a simple statement, just a couple of words, but the depth of that, the understanding of who God is, is vast. Now, under the king eternal, God is eternal. He's immortal. He's invisible to us. And the only wise God. What does it mean that God is eternal? It means that God exists outside of time. Um, I heard a, a question once. It was, well, if God made the earth, who made God? Well, that's a stupid question. <laughs> I say there's no such thing as a stupid question, but that's a stupid question. If God made everything, there is nothing that could have made God. God is eternally existent. He exists outside of everything that we understand. He, there, the time, space, matter, like all of this stuff was created by God. Our, our whole perception of our existence is created by a God who exists outside of all of that. He is so much bigger, so much greater, so much better than we even imagine that he is. Um, there's another verse that I was trying to think of, but I, I can't come up with it at the moment. Look at just another verse, just for a moment. Hebrews chapter 9. said, unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. That's the verse I was coming up with. God, God is so far beyond our imagination and we limit him so much in how we treat him. How we, how we respond to him. So Hebrews chapter 9 Hebrews 9, verse 14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, to purge your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God? Now, verse on its own didn't, doesn't sound like a lot. And you, you could easily miss some of what is, what is there, but read it again. It says, how much more shall the blood of Christ more, um, the context is, is the Old Testament sacrifices, the blood of the, the bulls and goats and lambs and all these things that they sacrificed for the purifying of the flesh. And now he says, how much more, how much more than all that shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Once again, we have the three persons of the Godhead clearly stated in one verse. We have Christ as the Son of God. We have the eternal spirit offering Christ's blood before God the Father. There has to be three persons of God, and yet God says we are one. It says, to purge your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. The blood of Christ was given so that our conscience can be purged. Stop living in the, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, 
Stop living in the past. Worrying about the sin that you once committed because God has erased that. The whole purpose, God, the blood of Christ covered it, so God no longer sees that sin. So what are you doing looking at that, limiting yourself before God when God doesn't do that? Right? One more, one more verse on that topic of God's eternal existence. So this one was, Hebrews 9, was the eternal spirit. It, it is eternal, like it exists outside of time. Deuteronomy chapter 33. sent this verse to Charmaine when she was at the hospital the other couple weeks ago. Deuteronomy 33, verse 27. If I back up one more verse, just again, verse 26 says, There is none like unto the God of Jeshurun, that's just God, who rideth upon the heaven in thy help, and in his excellency on the sky, the eternal God is thy refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms, and he shall thrust out the enemy before thee and shall say, destroy them. <laughs> well, here's like a, the whole story of creation and, and judgment all in one verse, but the eternal God is thy refuge. If we, if we can grasp who God is, if we can get our head past limiting God to our understanding that he exists beyond our comprehension in power and wisdom and authority. And we understand that verse, the eternal God is thy refuge. What are we doing? Why are we worried? Why do we worry about what people might do? God is far greater than all that we see. Our view of God is too small. Now I just, where I'm going here, just where, where this thought process led me um, as I was studying this. We look at Scripture, and I recently talked about prophecy and how Christ, in his life and ministry, in his death, burial, and resurrection, fulfilled over 300 prophecies that were written in the Old Testament. As in every prophecy that was written about him, he did fulfill. And there's 300 or more that we have come up with that we can find that Hey, this prophesied of that, and yes, indeed, he did fulfill that prophecy. You know, the prophecy in the Bible is not like a prediction. Like, we predict weather because, well, poorly most of the time, but, but we, we, they, <laughs> we can get pretty good at it by understanding cloud formations and wind patterns and, and barometric pressure and all these different factors and we can see what is happening in the weather, and we can predict the weather. Quite accurate. Like, it, it is shocking, right, that we can predict weather to how many millimeters of precipitation we're going to receive before it comes. That's, that's, that's pretty impressive. That's not how God works. We're taking all these factors, counting it all together, and coming up with a, our best guess of what's going to happen based on those factors. That's a prediction. That is not how prophecy works. Prophecy is God existing outside of time and saying, I already know what happens. And I'm certain that this is a very poor example, but if, if you and I sit down and watch a movie but I've already seen it and you haven't. And then I tell you how it ends. 
before we get to the end, and there's a plot twist, right? You never saw it coming. Well, how did I know? I've already seen it. How else? I don't know how else to describe the difference between God and, and us. Is that if God exists outside of time, he's already seen it. Um, some people have described very poorly, I think, as in God seeing down the ages of time, like looking down a, a tunnel at this, this events that are, are going to happen. But I don't see it that way. It's like God is always present, always present. Like he, he eternally existent, meaning he didn't have to see it, what is going to happen in the future. He's seen it take place already. He knows exactly because he's watched it already. He's eternal. Like eternal isn't just eternally past. It's like eternal. He's always, he's go, always goes both directions. All directions. So if God can see and has seen the whole story unfold already, there's no ambiguity. There's no question. There's no predicting these things. He knows already. He's already seen it. He's, he knows how it happens. He, know, he knows every decision that we're going to make. But does that mean that God causes us to make every decision that we make? Just because he's if I've already seen the movie and I tell you how it's going to unfold, I didn't cause it to do that. I just knew that that's what was going to happen. God's capable of knowing without controlling every detail, right? Um, I want you to look at that in, in this area. 1 Peter chapter 1. Apparently, if I'm in Hebrews, it's not far away. First Peter chapter 1. And this is just Peter. You know how Paul introduces every one of his epistles? Grace unto you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, grace, peace, and mercy, whatever. This, he's got a, a, an introduction to every letter that he writes. Well, Peter is doing that. This is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through, sanctifi- through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Well, it's just an introduction, but he says a couple of things. He says, you're elect, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit, and the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. He's explaining salvation. But he says you're elect according to the foreknowledge of God and then gives the process by how that happens through the sanctification of the Spirit by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, the offering of Jesus' blood for our sin. But it's you're elect according to what God has already known through his eternal existence, seeing what would take place throughout all eternity. He's already seen it happen, and he knows. And he's made some declarations concerning the outcome of these things. If we go back to, there's two more passages, Romans chapter 8. And since we're there, I'll just 
read this verse, we know all, all things, this is verse 28, Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. When we talk about uh, Karen being in the hospital and Marnie showing up in the bed next to her in the same room, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. God, like, Marnie could be miserable over the sickness that she's dealing with, the pain that she's suffering, the infection that she received, how she had to end up in the hospital again. But you know how many people were praising God that Marnie got put in the bed next to Karen? To make sure that there's someone else that, to give the gospel message to her. And there wasn't a doubt on anybody's mind that Marnie was going to do that. She's not going to sit there wallowing in self-pity. Someone made a statement. She was even praying that she would be put somewhere where she could witness to somebody. That's, that's somebody that actually believes that verse. That regardless of our circumstance, God can use it for his glory. All things work together for good. Even our worst nightmares, God can still use for his glory. It's not the point of what I'm saying, but it's, it's there. Verse 29, though, says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. So God, if, I, if I'm understanding God correctly, and I'm trying to, if he exists outside of time and has already seen everything that's going to take place, he knows the outcome of everything. He knows our choices, our moves, our decisions, our thoughts, before we ever think them or make those choices, right? So whom he did foreknow by existing outside of time, he did also predestinate. But to, to what purpose? To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We're, con, we're predestined by, if God foreknew that we would trust in Christ as our Savior, the predestination is to be conformed to the image of his son. That's his purpose and the eventual outcome of our salvation. I hope I haven't lost anybody yet. I'm going to go to Ephesians chapter 1 to try to finish this thought. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm not skipping the, ver the first part here to avoid it. I just think there's a better explanation as we get to the second part that kind of partly repeats the first part here. So for the sake of time, I'm just going to start in verse 9. So Ephesians 1, verse 9. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, we just need to understand that this creation is for God's pleasure. We were made for his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, and even in him in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, 
that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom also, sorry, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. If I back up, if you're thinking about the last verse that we read in Romans, verse 14 kind of explains this, which is the earnest. Earnest would be a down payment, basically, of our inheritance. So the Holy Spirit dwelling in us is a down payment. It's a promise that, yes, I'm going to fulfill the rest of this. Um, it's the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. That's the ultimate outcome of our salvation. But if we look at, so, what's been predestined here? Verse 11 says, being predestined according to the purpose of him that worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. So we're predestined according to, to God's purpose. Verse 12 tells us what that is, that we should be to the praise of his glory. Romans 8 said that was to be conformed to his, his image, right? That's, that's his purpose. And then in verse 14, we see that that's going to happen. So we're predestined according to his purpose, which is to conform us to his image. That, we're, that we are to be to the praise of his glory. Who? Well, Paul is writing this. He says, who first trusted in Christ. He's actually talking about himself initially. But in verse 13, he says, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So it's himself and the people he's talking to. After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Can we break that down a little bit? We need to be careful. There are people teaching that the predestination has to do with you are selected. Um, earlier here it says before the foundation of the world. To be saved. But the predestination has nothing to do with your salvation. It's whom he did foreknow. He already knew that you were going to do it. And those that he knew that you would choose to trust by faith Christ alone for your salvation, he's going to conform you to his image. That's what the predestination is, is that that is what's going to be the outcome of that choice. And he says... In verse 13, he gives us the order of those events. If you're, you aren't saved, you aren't regenerated prior to your faith. It comes after. He says it, kind of walks through it backwards. After that, after that, right? It's like, well, we have to walk through this. But the first thing that comes... Verse 13, in whom you trusted, who first trusted in Christ, right? So that was verse 12. In whom, so that's Christ, you trusted after you heard the word of truth. You didn't believe, your faith didn't come before you heard. Your faith comes after hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That's what we need to hear is the gospel. Um, just this morning, I think I was just reading it, but a response or a, a preacher or somebody was talking about an event that took place and somebody got up and proclaimed this thing, asked everybody that wants to go to heaven and receive Jesus, and he led them in this prayer, but not once mentioned Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as payment for the sin. And so... 
There's no gospel presented. Therefore, there's no faith in the gospel for their salvation. So anybody that followed that person in that prayer never got saved because they didn't hear the gospel. We have to be careful that we actually give the gospel, not just receive Jesus into your heart. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says he died and was buried for your sins. And you need to put your faith in that as your whole salvation, right? So after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, we have to preach the gospel. You have to hear the gospel. In whom, after you believed, so we trusted after we heard, and now after we trusted, after we believed, then you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Verse, the end of verse 13. After you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. If you were chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved, wouldn't that sealing come before the foundation of the world? Not when you believe? We need to put things in their context and understand God's knowledge is far beyond our comprehension. And so when he looks at things and says, I already knew, and so I've made some declarations of how some of this is going to turn out because I know what your choice is going to be. It doesn't mean that he caused you to believe. It means that he knew that you would believe and therefore I'm going to do this for you. I've made a promise to you that did believe, that would believe. I hope that was clear enough. I've definitely talked long enough. 